A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, what does this fellow talk like that? Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Well, good morning church. It's a great day to worship the Lord Jesus with his people. It's just awesome to be here. This passage that we're going to look at today, I taught this at our uh, Sunday night high school group and our Wednesday night middle school group a few weeks ago, and it really has been captivating my heart in deeper ways ever since. And this, you know, on the surface, of course, this is an amazing miracle that Jesus performs here, and it can look like the centerpiece of the story. But we're going to see that really the centerpiece of the story is the answer to the question, who is this Jesus? Who is he? It's about his identity. Well, I want to set the stage first for us, and the first couple of verses in this passage do that. So let's look at that together. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered, in, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, when he preached the word to them. There are a lot of people here. You know, by this time in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus, the word had been getting out in Capernaum and other villages that this is a man who can really help people, heal people, cast demons out of people. I mean, he's, he's been doing this. Um, this is a little earlier uh, in the book of Mark, and it's also earlier in uh, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, but word was already out to the point where people are kind of just crowding. So you have these crowds that are coming. The word's getting out. You know, This is probably a mixed bag of people, people there for all kinds of different reasons. I'm sure that you have a good number of these people uh, that are looking to be entertained or wowed. Maybe they have an infirmity that they want this healer to, to fix. Uh, maybe there's some that are just intrigued. Who is this? And they're coming for the right reasons and good motives. But we also learn that there were some high-level religious leaders that were there. And you would think that these religious leaders who, who had their Bibles, the Old Testament, they taught from the actual Bible, uh, you would think that these people would be the first to come to Jesus in faith. And yet, what do we see? we see that these people are hostile to Jesus. And we're gonna unpack that a little bit more 
uh, later. But basically, what are they doing there? And it's kind of this idea, you know, you know the quote, uh, keep, your, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. Okay, they wanted to keep their eye on this guy. And then up to this point in Mark, the healings that Jesus has done have been relatively peaceful. They've not stirred up enemies. They've not, you know, people have gotten help. Uh, but this really is the first time in the this gospel story of Mark where hostility begins. And we're going to see that. And it actually gets worse and worse and worse. The opposition to Jesus resulting ultimately in him on the cross. We're going to look at three sets of main characters in this story. We're going to see courageous friends. We're going to see corrupt leaders, and we're going to see a complete Savior. So first, the courageous friends, verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they they could not get get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man lowered the mat that the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine this scene, and you're gonna see a picture here of a, of a typical Palestinian home, kind of a cross-section. Sometimes these homes were two stories like this one. Other times they're one story. Uh, they're made of mud bricks and timber and clay uh, that would pack everything together. Um, they were basically shaped like a cube with flat roofs. Sometimes they had ladders on the side on the outside. Other times they had stair steps kind of built on the outside because they would use the rooftop to dry things or to get out and get some fresh air at night or things like that. Uh, So they would have a way to get up there typically. Um, But these homes, and you can see in kind of an inside picture, there would be wood beams that would be laid across from the walls and then smaller sticks And then in Luke's version of this story, he talks about, uh, he calls them tiles, but they're kind of like flat stones that are laid on top of the thatch. And then there's just layers of mud uh, that are uh, put on top of that to make it waterproof. And you can actually see a picture here of what it might have looked like to, to dig a hole through this kind of roof. So for them to dig a hole like this would have been quite a scene, and especially they had to drag a man on a mat. You can imagine each one of them taking four corners of a, of a sheet or something like that, dragging them up you know, these, these stairs and digging through. Uh, it was quite a scene. Kind of gives new meaning to a drop-in visitor in some ways, but uh, this is, I, I had to do a dad joke. I mean, I got my, my boys here, you know. Um, but I want to look, before we look at the interaction that Jesus has with these men and this paralyzed man, I want us to look at this idea of friendship. What does good friendship look like? And what can we learn from these four men about friendship? So if, if we were to kind of extract some principles from what we see in the story, we see, I, I kind of have identified six sort of principles. First, good friendship we think of others before ourselves. When the opportunity came, you know, they heard, oh, this man, this man named Jesus, he's going around, he, he's, came, he's come to our village. They didn't rush to the front of the line. They, they, they looked around them and said, who else can we bring and help get to the front of the line? So they thought of others. Good friends take the initiative. They sought this man out. You know, a paralyzed man like this, they don't, you know, people in these kinds of conditions don't get out much, okay? And so he would have been easy for them to ignore, but they took the initiative and sought him out. They helped those 
who have nothing to offer. This man, this paralyzed man couldn't do normal things. Uh, it's, it really was a major inconvenience for um, you know, these four friends of his to hang out or go somewhere with him. Uh, he was living with family members probably. He was dependent on others just to have a basic, you know, a basic existence. You know, Jesus in Luke chapter six talks about what sets Christians apart from the world. And he, it's interesting, he doesn't say there that Christians love people and pagans don't love people. He actually says everybody loves people. The difference with Christians is that we love people who are hard to love, who don't repay, who don't give back, who, you know, it's costly and you don't get backfilled from that person. The pagans love, but they tend to love people who love them back or pay them back, you know, exchanging favors back and forth. That's the worldly way of loving. But this is the Christian way. We help those who have nothing to offer. Number four, we persevere. We don't let anything stop us. These crowds were, were in the way, you know, they finally, I mean, surely they're late, right? They're kind of the last in line to get there. It takes time to, to you know, carry someone like this to this place. Um, this crowd, they're taking up seats, they weren't helping, but the four friends didn't let that stop them. They, they got creative, they innovated, they worked around the obstacles. You know, too bad these crowds didn't observe social distancing, you know? I mean, <laughs> it would have solved a lot of problems and simplified some things. Uh, but number five, good friends are willing to pay the price. Again, look at the extent that they went through. They broke things to get their friend to Jesus. They probably had to, you know, well, you know, we're just gonna, we don't care. We're just gonna break through. We're gonna pay the, the bill later maybe. They risked looking like fools. They, they got people, probably Jesus, dirty, you know, the dirt, clods just coming down, dust everywhere, can you imagine? Um, they probably look like fools in that moment. Uh, Jim Wilson said, those who've experienced Christ's love often pay the tab so others can hear about it. Or to put it another way, whenever someone comes to Christ, it's because someone had to pay for the roof, right? Someone had to pay to help people get to Jesus. So be willing to pay the price. And the final principle about friendship is point people to the one who can help. You know, we all have friends in our lives and, and many times our friends have problems that have, they've never happened to us or we have no clue how to help them or what to say. We don't know what to do. Um, we can't necessarily relate fully, but don't we have someone who can relate? Don't we have someone who, who can help? And so good friends, uh, act as a go-between from our hurting friend to Jesus. Here's some practical ways that we individually and corporately can, can kind of put this into practice. And I'm just, just kind of a laundry list of things and you can think of more, I'm sure. But we can pray for our friends. We can pray, you know, intercessory prayer is very much like what these four friends did for this paralyzed man. We can show up, we can be a listening ear, we can be present. A lot of times our friendship means mouth shut, ears open, present, right? That's often what it means. Finding ways to serve them practically at the right time and with the Spirit's leading, opening our mouths and, and sharing the gospel and talking about 
Jesus. Getting into uh, biblical community and small groups, helping our friends to, whether they're believers or not, you know, helping them to connect to others who are broken and hurting, but getting help from Jesus so they can get help. Inviting people to church, inviting them into, you know, these things that Andrea was talking about, these, these places, like there's no magic in this. These are just platforms. These are just opportunities for us to hopefully invite some outsiders and people that we haven't seen maybe in a while, we reach out, reach out to, and it's an easy stepping stone to get into relationships that can lead them to Jesus. If you're married, man, this, this stuff is convicting, right? Um, if you're married, are you being this kind of friend to your spouse? Are you pointing them to Jesus? Are you um, humbling yourself and helping them to get to Jesus? For those of you who are, who are looking to be married, whether young or not, you know, you want to find and look for a person who's going to point you to Jesus. If you're around a person that you're considering dating or marrying, and they take you away, they take your eyes off of Jesus like the crowd was in the way, don't marry that person. Get out of that relationship. You need to be around somebody who is drawing you in and taking you to Jesus, okay? But there are a lot of practical ways to do this. But the point is, we personally do not have a lot to offer people, but we know the one who does. So who is paralyzed around you? Who needs help? Who is struggling? Who is discouraged? Who is hurting? Oftentimes, we're the ones that are hurting. We're the ones that are paralyzed. And it's hard sometimes. It's pride. You know, it's not wanting to burden others. It's hard to ask for help. But this paralyzed man allowed his friends to take him to Jesus. We need that too. We need to be these kind of friends and we need these kinds of friends in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but this list of good friendship, is, it really is convicting. It feels like a heavy load. How could I ever be that kind of friend? And of course, the answer is that Jesus is the true and better friend. The friendship of these four pales in comparison to Jesus's friendship for us. Jesus didn't just seek us out in the village. He came all the way from heaven to earth. He took the initiative. He came after people who didn't deserve it, who had nothing to offer. We're the ones who are paralyzed and he chased us down. He didn't climb onto a roof, but onto a cross. He didn't just get his hands and knuckles bloody. He was pierced and he was whipped. He was made bloody on the cross for us. He didn't just put himself in danger for us, but he died for us. John 15, 13, Jesus defines friendship. Greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what Jesus has done for us. When that grips our hearts, it humbles us and it empowers us to be that kind of friend to others. It's really the friendship of Jesus that we're expressing through us when we seek to grow in these areas. Now, the second group of characters in this story are the corrupt leaders. We've looked at the four friends, and now let's look at these, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark here, um, is, they are described as the scribes. In uh, Luke's version of this story, he uh, includes the Pharisees. So we know that the Pharisees and the scribes are there in the crowd. These are the religious elites and the leaders in that day. Now, I told you at the beginning that there's kind of a, a hostility. There's a showdown that's coming, and we're going to see that coming right here. In verse 6, 
we see now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that, he, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So let me give you a little bit of background about who these scribes and Pharisees are. You know, these are the people that started off with the Bible, and they said, you know, we really care about the Bible. We want to teach the Bible. We, we really care about obedience to the Bible. Is that a good thing? Yes, that's a really good thing, to care about the Bible and what God says and how we should be living. But they ended up at the end of the story being arch enemies of Jesus, and they were complicit in the murder of Jesus on the cross. So how did this happen? How could that have gone from caring about the Bible so much all the way to that. Well, they cared deeply about obeying God, and so, you know, they would identify a sin in the Scriptures, and what they would do was they would build fences around that sin. So, okay, don't get anywhere close to that sin, so let's protect ourselves from that. Then to cross the fence became a sin, and so they had to put more fences around the fences around the sin so that you could protect yourself from getting even close to even close to the sin. Do you see how this can happen? You have the the commands of God, and you have the commands of man that are added and added and added. It, it does come from a good place in the sense of we want to be holy, we want to protect ourselves from sin, but it ends up distracting at the end of the day and adding all these rules and laws. It becomes, it becomes about the rules, and then they have rules about the rules. It kind of becomes uh, ridiculous. Um, they ended up caring more about outward conformity to these rules than an intimate relationship with God. They lost sight of that relationship with God. It led them to an us-them kind of mentality where they're on the inside. They're the ones that are, uh, you know, care about holiness and are growing in holiness, and they, were not, they weren't contaminated, so to speak, by these outsiders that didn't care about that stuff. They made religion about what we do to get to God rather than what God has done to get to us. And in the horizontal sense, they made religion about how to get and maintain power and privilege and prestige in the community, to be seen as holy, to be seen as put together. That's what they wanted. And anything that was a threat to that, they became hostile to. Now, in our passage in verse 6, we see this being expressed. This little phrase right here, what is their body position? Where are they physically? They're in the house and they're sitting there. These are the ones that were first in line. They have, so to speak, you know, front row seats to this Jesus. Whereas uh, the people from the village, you know, blue collar workers and the poor, they're kind of just crowding around inside, just trying to find space. The doorway is packed. You can't even get in to this, this house. Um, but they're sitting there, they're in their seats. They're so focused on scrutinizing Jesus that they're completely oblivious to the people around them that are hurting and actually need Jesus. Now, we have to be really careful. We have to be really careful here because all of us have this tendency when left to ourselves. But for the grace of God, that's us, okay? That's me. We have this little Pharisee that pops up, you know, we like to, we have these insecurities, and how do we compensate for that? Well, we find ways to feel superior and put others down and, and outlive, outwin, outdo others in religion. Sometimes we can use theology as weapons to protect that, 
okay? And it can be, um, it, it can be really tragic how uh, we in our individual lives, in our homes, in our relationships, even as a church, um, can end up doing this accidentally, not realizing that that's what's happening. Um, Bruce Barton puts it this way. He says, the crowd that had gathered made it impossible to bring the paralyzed man close to Jesus. In successful churches or in our busy Christian lives, we can be oblivious to the needy people on the outside who want to see Jesus. In some churches, a needy person must forge ahead through the crowds of strangers who give no hint of Christian warmth or joy. The people already present can become so preoccupied with their own relationships and agendas they may not even see those trying to get in. That should never happen. Where Jesus is present, let the faces of the faithful reflect his love and let their hands extend to greet all people as friends. We need God's grace. We need God's grace. Um, So those are the scribes and the Pharisees. Now notice in the story that there are three miracles that are happening here. It's easy to think of really the one miracle of, of Jesus um, saying to the man, get up, take your mat and walk, healing him of his paralysis. That is the front and center uh, miracle, but that's really the third one that happens. The first one is Jesus forgiving the man's sins. That's the first miracle in the story, but nobody was amazed. Nobody was cheering. Nobody was uh, just undone with joy about Jesus looking at this man and saying, son, your sins are forgiving, forgiven. What's the second miracle? Is that Jesus literally read the minds of these religious leaders. He opened up their hearts for all to see. And this is the last thing a Pharisee wants is to be seen. You know, uh, religious people like Pharisees, we put a lot of effort into putting on the masks, right? And it takes a lot of effort to do that. And so it can be a threat to find people getting in behind that. In verses six and seven, they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But God alone. Who can do this but God alone? These are the religious people saying this. They're the ones that are connecting the dots. They know their Bibles, okay? So for example, in Psalm 51.4, David had committed the sin you know, with Bathsheba and he's, he's just broken and contrite. He's, he's praying to God And he says this, against you and you alone have I sinned. He knows that he sinned against Bathsheba and and her husband and other people, but ultimately all sin is an offense against God. And these religious people are connecting those dots and they immediately accuse him of blaspheming. He's claiming to be God right here. And that's a whole nother sermon, but then this is one of those places where, you know, God either says that he, I mean, Jesus says that he's God or he does things that only God can do. And this is one of those uh, instances. But do you notice that they never said these words out loud? He says, why are you thinking these things? They said these things in their hearts. They're thinking to them, here's their thoughts. Okay, they're saying, you're not God. Jesus says, up. Oh, I know that you just thought you're not God. I, 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 just, I just read that, okay? Can you imagine how unsettling that would have been? You would think that once he literally read their minds, that they would have kind of reconsidered their position? No, okay? This is, 
the fact that Jesus is God, this is like the big E on the eye chart at the doctor's office, at the eye doctor. This is the obvious. If you can't see the big E, you can't see anything else. And the, these guys are recognizing that, wow, this goes beyond any kind of miracle here. This is about who Jesus really is. But this is how strong the religious mindset can be. There can be such a concern about conformity and external uh, expression and preferences that it can blind us to the very heart of the matter, which is, is Jesus God? Who is he really? Now, I want to make this a little more personal. What do you do when Jesus turns and looks at you and sees behind the masks? You know, imagine yourself in that crowd, in that place, and he reads your thoughts and makes it known that he's reading your thoughts. He knows your heart. That's a little scary. It's a little terrifying, okay? I mean, you can imagine, you know, I can't remember what movie I saw this in or whatever, but the person who just goes to Home Depot and buys like six or seven deadbolt locks and just installs them on the door and they're just stacked up on the door. And yes, I finally have locked away my heart. Nobody can get in. Only what they see on the outside, okay? They can't get in. And then it's like Jesus is tapping them on the shoulder. Hey, I'm here. I see it all, you know? And it would be a little unsettling, you know? Um, Hebrews 4.13 4, says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees it all. He sees it all. It really would be terrifying if he wasn't a good God, if he wasn't a loving and gracious God. You know, he, he, for, the, for those who bow the knee and trust Jesus, he brings life. He brings security. He brings safety and identity and change at the core, all the way down. First John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the light is scary. It exposes. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That is good news. But we have to open. We have to open our hearts. Uh, Tim, Keller, Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, by the way, if you want a really good theological book and practical book on marriage, get this one, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. But he has this quote that I love, and you've heard me say it before. He says, to be loved and not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be both known and loved is what it's like to be loved by God. Go there, guys. Don't be like these Pharisees. Open up your hearts and your lives. Now, the difference between the Pharisees here and the paralytic is not a difference of need. It's a difference of the awareness of that need. Uh, James Edwards puts it this way. Jesus can heal a man of physical paralysis. The larger question is whether he can heal the scribes of spiritual paralysis. The scribes are no less dependent on Jesus than is the paralytic for the work of God but their learning and status make them less aware of their need for it. And so let's open up our hearts to Jesus, junk and all. Let's, let's let Jesus tap us on the shoulder after all this effort to protect and close it down and say, I'm here, I see it, and I love you anyway. Our third point is the Savior, the complete Savior. We've seen the courageous friends. We've seen the corrupt leaders. This is the complete Savior who puts his full 
divine power and compassion on display. So he just called out these religious leaders, why are you thinking these things? And then he continues this conversation by giving them a riddle. And here's the riddle, which is easier, verse eight, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So what do you think? What's the answer to the riddle? Which, which of these is easier? It's a little bit of a trick question because it depends on kind of your perspective, right? I mean, if you were walking around a hospital declaring people in these, in these hospital beds healed and it actually happens, can you imagine what people would do? But if you say go to the mall and you just walk around declaring people's sins forgiven, okay, it may be weird, but you, you can't verify whether that's true or not. So the difference here is from a human perspective, a healing like this can be verified, whereas forgiveness that just seems so ethereal, you know? Um, how do you verify that? Now, how do you think Jesus would have answered this question? In other words, what's the right answer? You know, how would Jesus have answered this? Well, if Jesus is truly God in the flesh, then think about what a healing like this means. Jesus is the creator. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there in the beginning. Spirit hovering over the waters. You know, uh, the, the Genesis 1 and 2, let us make God in our image. Jesus flung stars in the sky. He created, he was there. He's the creator. For Jesus to heal a man of paralysis is like Michelangelo being commissioned to paint that famous painting in the Sistine Chapel, right? Took him years and years to do this. And then a few years later, there's, you know, some of the colors are a little bit dingy and they call him back in to do some touch-up. Jesus healing this man of paralysis is the touch-up of his creation. To Jesus, healing is nothing. It's like, oh, I spoke you into existence out of the dust of the earth. I can make you whole again. I can fix what's wrong with your body. To him, that's nothing. To a creator, healing is easy. But how hard is it to forgive sins? Remember that God is holy. He can't just wave off sin and say, oh yeah, I forgive you. He cannot have sin in his presence. Somebody has to pay. And we know that it actually required the crucifixion of Jesus, God's only son, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. That's the only way we could come to God because we're sinners. He is holy and we are not. You remember Jesus sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, how hard that would have been and in his, his human nature, um, just the stress of that, the fear, and yet, not my will, but your will be done. I will drink the cup of suffering. He, he, it was, he was anticipating the pain of being crucified. He knew it was coming. That's what it took to forgive our sins. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of the paralytic briefly. He's lowered down. What do you think he really wants in that moment? He wants healing. Okay, now we don't know his heart. Uh, apparently, there's seeds of faith there. 
Jesus does commend these men, including the paralytic, of their faith. And so we know Jesus sees their hearts in ways that we can't see it. But in a human sense, this man has been miserable all his life. Think of what it does to your social life and friendships and just the physical pain and the shame that comes with disability like this. He really wanted to be relieved of this, and that's good. That's okay to want to be relieved of these kinds of things. So we have to ask the question, almost like a a quick aside, does God care about these things? Is it okay to ask for healings? Does God heal, you know? How should we look at this? We all certainly struggle with pain and confusion and anxiety and work is frustrating. We experience the curse of sin in this world. Um, It's hard to be in this world. We desperately want to be delivered and it's okay to ask for that. Does God sometimes heal people? Yes, he sometimes does. If God chooses to miraculously heal you in this life, that really is a good thing. Um, Praise God, you know, steward that gift well and praise God for that. But just remember, even Lazarus, who was literally raised from the dead, who was literally raised from the dead, he had to die again. He had to die again. He experienced physical pain again after that earthly resurrection. He's one of those few people in heaven when we get there that's gonna say, not only was I born again, but I died again, okay? I mean, this is Lazarus. So what is the main point of this? You know, we know that for all who are in Christ, we will have a new heavens, a new earth to live in. We will have a glorified body where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. That is coming. That is guaranteed, and it's gonna last forever and ever. It's hard to imagine. Now, if God chooses to bring some of that that total healing from the future and bring it into this earthly life briefly for a little bit, that's his prerogative. He can do that. But let's put it into perspective. For all who are in Christ, not only do you get your sins forgiven, you get reconciled to a holy God and a loving God, you also will be healed totally one day. So let's not minimize the healing. That's coming for all who are in Christ. Does that give you hope, perspective? So what is it that we really need? We really need this reconciliation to God. If he had been healed, but his sins were not forgiven, he would have been done for. That is not what he really needed. We need to explore one more question. You know, how bad is our sin? Uh, Because to appreciate the badness of sin is to appreciate the forgiveness of that sin. So how deep does it go? You know, sin is not just behaving badly, it's a corrupt heart. Therefore, the gospel can't just be about behavior modification, it has to be about heart renovation. The Pharisees got it all wrong. They got it all wrong. Once the heart is made clean, then good behaviors follow. Luke 6.45 says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. We don't just commit sins. These sins are coming from a place of self-centeredness, of self-lordship. It's saying in our hearts in that moment when we sin, I know better than God. I know know better what's good for me. And I'm gonna choose to do this because in this moment, I think this is better. It's it's a corrupt heart. Sinful acts are the fruit of self-lordship. 
So when we say it this way, when we see how bad sin is, then we begin to realize, okay, when Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven, he is changing this man's whole life. He's reaching down deep. C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy named Eustace in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace was a self-centered, belligerent boy. Uh, He often sort of bullied his friends. Uh, And he found a cave full of treasure, and he was just in awe of this treasure. He didn't realize, though, that this treasure had a curse on it, that anybody who would take the treasure would be turned into a dragon. So that's what happened. He turned into a miserable dragon because he reached out for this treasure. That experience of him being a dragon, it began to humble him. It began to soften his heart. He began to realize what he had been doing. And he was starting to come to himself. He was starting to realize, I don't want to be that old person anymore. And so in this story, that, that re-identification with becoming a dragon led to repentance. He later had an encounter with Aslan the lion. And Aslan told him to start peeling off his dragon skin. And so he, he, uh, he starts ripping off his skin, okay, to get rid of this dragon identity. And he, he went through all that effort to get the skin off and he looked at himself, he's up, oh, I'm still a dragon. And so he did it again. He ripped another layer of skin off and he was still a dragon and he kept going. Nothing was changing who he was. And then Aslan the lion looked at him and said, lay down, I'm the only one who can help you. And so Eustace was desperate, so he laid down and he let the lion go to work. And here's how... Eustace in the book describes the experience to his friends later. He said, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull, pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And then he told him to, to, to uh, dip in the spring. And then he realized he was himself again. He was the boy again. But it took Jesus digging deep with his claws into our hearts, something that only Jesus can do to go down that deep. You know, sin has turned us all into dragons and we're desperate. And we need him to dig deep, to know our hearts and love us anyway. The only true lion can do that. Only he can bring this type of change to our lives, but it comes at a cost, right? It comes at a cost. It costs us to let Jesus do that. It costs us our self-lordship. He is God and we are not. It costs us our pride, our ego, our agendas. And we're just laid bare before him, totally at his mercy. And he says, even though I see your heart all the way deep down, I'm going to heal you, and it's going to involve pain. And I'm the one who's going to take the pain on the cross, ultimately, to change your identity and change your heart. When we bow the knee to King Jesus and give our life to him, we are totally forgiven, and one day we will totally be healed. We get our whole life back, the life that we were created for and meant to be by God. So take heart, friends. Jesus is our true friend who lays down his life to bring us to the Father forgiven and clean. He's the all-knowing God who cuts open our corrupt hearts and loves us anyway. 
And he's the complete savior who totally heals our hearts and one day our bodies. Do you believe it? Is that real to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that as we um, learn how to face ourselves and name our sin and, and have that courage of realizing it's worse than we think because of our just pride and our wanting to be on the throne of our lives, God, you see all that and you take care of it and you say to us, I love you anyway. God, just help that to melt our hearts. And as we experience that kind of um, new life from you, I pray that that would overflow from us and to those around us uh, through friendship, just through healthy, um, secure friendship that just overflows. And we uh, see hurting people around us. We see unbelievers next door. We see coworkers who, who just don't know you. And help us, Lord, to just overflow with this good news that you are offering forgiveness. And help us to bring our friends to you through friendship. God, we thank you that you completely save us and we look forward to that day when everything is made right. God's sin and pain and suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. Thank you that through the resurrection, death does not have the last word. And we will be healed fully and finally one day in glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.